Professor Joel Gierboff is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies <laughs> at ASU. That's called Shippers. That's called Shippers. Okay. Or odds and ends. Odds and ends. As well as visiting Associate Professor at HUC in LA and at AJR of California. He's the, author, he's the author of Rabbi Tarphone, The Tradition, The Man, and Early Rabbinic Judaism. His current research focuses on American Jewish responses, responses to the Holocaust and its aftermath as expressed in periodical literature. And a lot of his current research focuses on Judaism and the emotions. I'm uh, grateful to have the opportunity to learn with you. Everyone, I hope, has a source packet. And uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Gerald. Yeah. So, uh, so thank you. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it's nice to see a lot of people I've known for a long time. I don't want to say old friends, because that's not necessarily a compliment. So uh, it's always wonderful to come and have a chance uh, to teach and share ideas. Um, I've been working on various aspects of emotions in Judaism, and, uh, and that's an interesting topic, how cultures create our sense of what emotions are and the uh, appropriateness or inappropriateness of certain kinds of emotional responses. So uh, the particular paper, or the particular uh, text study we're going to do uh, comes out of a paper I wrote, which really comes out of my work on anger. And uh, in the fall, I don't think anybody here was there. I, I spoke in the community, um, at, at, which is good, because I look at some of the same texts, but not all of them. Um, I spoke in the community on the legitimacy of anger in, according to Jewish texts. Uh, and that's a whole interesting topic, but I would say at least uh, in some ways uh, Jews recognize that anger is a legitimate emotion under certain circumstances. And that's sort of how this uh, paper got started. Uh, the draft this paper I gave last year uh, at a conference at ASU uh, that was on peace, and it was called People's Peace. And uh, the conference in particular uh, sought to examine uh, mostly various kinds of efforts in, in the world uh, that in cases of uh, cases in which there have been often severe forms of uh, tension, if not warfare, um, uh, among different populations, and then looked at various efforts um, that um, were being done, whether by NGOs, non-governmental organizations, or through more formalized institutional frameworks, to try somehow um, create a less hostile, if not a peaceful, uh, effort. So that was the uh, context of, uh, uh, of what we, the group looked at in terms of peace. I must say, uh, many of the papers uh, nicely looked at all these various efforts that examined any number of conflicts, many of which are today. Few papers looked at how groups that were hostile to each other uh, either uh, at least mitigated the hostility, if not achieved some level of peace at earlier points in time. And so I thought I would look at, um, because of some of the work I was doing on this project on anger, at um, what do certain uh, rabbinic sources, which is the world I am most comfortable in biblical and early rabbinic texts, I'll define what I mean by that in a minute, what do they may have to say about, uh, more generally about issues of peace, and more specifically about uh, issues of conflict and uh, seeking reconciliation 
in terms of instances in which uh, kinds of um, wrongs have been done on the part of one party uh, to the other. Um, so that's the kind of broader context uh, to what degree uh, when there's been some occasion of hostility or, or, or tension between parties or a sense of belonging by one party to the other, what kind of advice do uh, religious, uh, the Talmudic and early rabbinic sources uh, have to say on this topic? By early rabbinic, um, I just would simply define it as, I think most of us know here in this uh, case, because we're active participants in BBM, there are the biblical texts, the Tanakh, and after the Tanakh, uh, at least from the, uh, what becomes the uh, authoritative text of, for Jews, there are a whole bunch of other texts that Jews wrote that didn't make it into the set of canonical texts. But uh, in, in response to uh, uh, the destruction of the Second Temple of 70 of the Common Era, we see the emergence of, uh, of rabbis in the rabbinic movement, and they uh, express their views in a range of texts. Uh, early texts are attributed to a group of uh, uh, rabbis who live somewhere be up to around 200 of the Common Era, called Tanaim. And then um, the next stage of rabbinic literature is what uh, we call the Amoraic period. And the Amoraim, who live somewhere up to around 600 of the Common Era, they're the people behind the Talmud. So tonight we're going to look at, in time, a number of texts from that period. There are, of course, much later phases of Jewish writing in the medieval period, etc. But I would argue that whatever, whatever later phase of Jewish life uh, occurs, uh, people often, most Jewish thinkers in some ways, return to these earlier texts. So when I was thinking about, of course, reconciliation, many people want to argue and discuss what's the role of forgiveness in particular in reconciliation. To what degree is forgiveness necessary uh, for, in the case of a certain party harming or injuring, uh, whatever you want to say, dissing, a, and I'll come back to dissing uh, uh, later, not treating somebody appropriately, to what degree is forgiveness essential for the parties to be able to continue uh, in some form of either at a minimal, no longer being in some kind of a, if not a hostile, at least a violent situation with each other, and ideally to what degree is forgiveness essential or even necessary uh, for parties to uh, even restore some kind of relationship and continue. So it's possible, of course, that after uh, of, of a situation that led to uh, disunity, that people end up saying, okay, we're going to just try to avoid each other, and maybe then I don't have to forgive you, just stay out of my backyard and I'll stay out of your backyard and we'll go on. But particularly when people choose on some level to continue that relationship, to what degree is forgiveness really necessary? So um, what's in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that, but uh, when I started out, when I read this paper, wrote this paper, I kind of looked, interestingly, at a number of databases. Uh, not so much I didn't go to Amazon, but I think if you went to Amazon, you'd find the same thing. But I was even looking in academic uh, sources, and I would say uh, the academic discussions of 
forgiveness have increased dramatically in the past decade. Whatever field, whether it's in law, whether it's in humanities, whether it's in philosophy, there is, in the last 10 years, been an explosion in trying to figure out what forgiveness is, and many people arguing um, for the uh, uh, merits of forgiveness. Many of these publications, as I mentioned, are a product of the last 10, dec last 10 years, and it's quite evident that interest in analyzing the character and methods for achieving forgiveness have recently risen in significance. And I suspect, I, again, I didn't look at Amazon to look at more popular literature, uh, about how to you know, forgive somebody and all that kind of stuff, or you know, we started looking at talk shows, whether it's Oprah or, or whoever it is that does those kind of talk shows. There are lots of these issues along this um, uh, line. Forgiveness serves as a key element of explorations of how to pursue reconciliation and peace, both on a group and on an interpersonal level. Uh, for the moment, I beg your indulgence, I don't normally do this, but I want to read a few pages here because they really lay out something that I really want to lay out with care, and then we'll turn to the rabbinic sources, so I don't usually read a paper, but I, I wanted to share with you some interesting ideas. A particularly insightful and valuable analysis of forgiveness from a philosophical and religious angle has been done by a classic scholar who taught uh, for a number of years at Brown, uh, my alma mater, and then is now teaching at NYU, my other alma mater, uh, just turns out that way, uh, David Constant. Uh, and uh, he's at NYU. He's observed, and this is what's interesting, that forgiveness is widely perceived as an urgent matter these days, not to say it isn't much vogue. Constant has published extensively on the emotions in classical writings, literary and philosophical, in part on anger and other emotions that are experienced, in this case, from issues of conflict. And he offers a novel and provocative discussion of the notion of forgiveness in his book, Before Forgiveness, The Origins of a Modern Idea. So I want to share with you a little bit what Constance says. At the center of his, the book is his assertion. It goes as follows. The modern concept of interpersonal forgiveness in the full sense of the term did not exist in ancient Greece and Rome. Even more startling, it is not fully present in the Hebrew Bible, at least as it relates to interpersonal human conflict, nor in the New Testament, or in early Jewish and Christian commentaries on the Holy Scriptures. In the ancient world, the classical Israelite, rabbinic, Jewish, early Christian, offended and offending parties did not seek to overcome conflict by seeking forgiveness or to be forgiven. In this paper, or what we're going to talk about, I'll examine a certain number of rabbinic texts, particularly ending with some narratives that are found in the Babylonian Talmud, in which parties seek to resolve interpersonal conflicts. The smaller number of previous studies of early rabbinic forgiveness has usually focused upon a number of sayings. We'll look at some of those. But uh, I want to focus particularly on these stories, because I think stories are kind of interesting in terms of how groups explore uh, issues. I think there should everybody at some point should have gotten a packet here with these sources, so we'll get to them in a minute. Stories more than sayings, even of literary fictional creations, present far more of the complexity of life situations 
You know, it's one thing to say, always forgive your friend. But I would argue stories give us the richness often. They're still constructed, but they give us more of a texture of how people are actually interrelating with each other. Some stories, in fact, in the Talmud, end with successful reconciliation, but they do not mention forgiveness. Other efforts at reconciliation, however, are depicted as resulting from rejection, often leading even to the death of one of the key figures involved. Examining these stories provides valuable insights into how Jews have thought about the challenges of overcoming conflicts, including not only strategies for doing so, but also the nature of the desired outcomes. In many ways, these accounts provoke consideration of the uh, connections between notions of appeasement, deference, forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. Think about that, we'll come back to other strategies. Appeasement, deference, perhaps forgiveness, are which of those seem to be necessary always to achieve some form of reconciliation. Before turning to the rabbinic evidence, I'd like to briefly highlight a couple of components of, high, of Constance's rich discussion. In order to advance his claim that before the Enlightenment, our understanding of forgiveness had not yet been conceptualized. Especially in the sources from antiquity, he first has to delineate the key traits of what we think of as forgiveness. Right, so if his claim is no notion of forgiveness before the modern period, well, what exactly do we understand forgiveness to be? So this is what he says. Forgiveness is understood as a dyadic relationship, that is two partners, two people, dyadic, uh, a relationship requiring serious transformation on the part of both the offending and the offended parties. There has to be some change that occurs in both. He says the following, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the principal modern acceptation is not reducible to, it's not in a modern sense, simply to the appeasement of anger, which may be achieved by compensation acts of self-abasement, the offer of plausible excuses for one's conduct and other means. That's not what we mean by forgiveness. Rather, it is a bilateral process involving a confession of wrongdoing on the part of the offender, evidence of sincere repentance, and the change of heart or moral perspective one might almost say more identity on the part of the offender, together with, and this is what's important, a comparable alteration in the forgiver by which she or he consents to forego vengeance on the basis precisely of a change in the offender. Because you've changed, I'm no longer going to uh, seek any kind of vengeance against you. Key then, according to Constant, is certain actions and emotional transformations to be for there to be forgiveness. The offending party, the one who has done harm, being intentional or even unintended, right? Sometimes you do things by mistake, but you still say, "I'm so sorry, I did that to you. Uh, uh, I didn't mean it, but I still hurt you in some way." 
so I need to sometimes rethink, seek forgiveness. The offending party must not just feel regret, I'm sorry I did it, but must have experienced, and this is a stronger case, a sense of remorse for what they recognize as their wrongdoing. Remorse is stronger than just regret. It's a much more intense emotional experience. Remorse entails the rejection in the future of the offending action. This sounds more like Maimonides, but I'm going to argue this is not what's in early rabbinic sources. Right? That, that uh, uh, rejection for the future of the offending uh, uh, action. Maimonides says, how do you know somebody's truly changed, has done tshuva, has repented, that if they find themselves in the same circumstance again, they do not have any urge to repeat the action, and they wouldn't repeat it. Then you know the person has done repentance. But I'm going to show this is not present, I think, in early rabbinic sources at all. Uh, uh, so you need to, the remorse entails the rejection of the future of the offending action and sorrow for the harm done, having a sense even of self-reproach. That's what the offender has to feel. On the other hand, the offending party must perceive that the perpetrator, the perpetrator has done, has in fact undergone a true change of heart. This is again in our modern notion. And he or she the offending, offended party must give up anger. Now that I recognize that what you did, you feel remorse for, I'm no longer angry at you. Because I, if I ha I'm still retaining anger, I really haven't forgiven you. Right? That emotional residue is evidence of the failure to truly forgive. That's on the part. Of, so that the offended party must give up anger, resentment, and a desire for revenge. If you retain any of those features, it's clear that you still haven't really forgiven the person at all. This complete list of requirements, this required components, I will argue, and he argues, is not found in ancient sources as they discuss the reconciliation in terms of particularly interpersonal events. He goes on to present a rich uh, uh, examination of depictions and discussions of conflicts and reconciliation in the various literature. I'm only going to note one or two of the features that he, he speaks about, and then we'll turn to our sources. As alluded to in the above quote from Constant, in these texts from antiquity, offending parties sought to appease, placate, conciliate the anger of those whom they uh, 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 offended. Anger, according to Aristotle and other Greek thinkers, and in many rabbinic stories, is only appropriate if a superior party has been dissed by an inferior party. In their world, if you're an inferior, you can't ever be angry at a superior. It's a hierarchical society. Uh, but, but in a certain sense, you, somebody who's inferior, why am I getting angry at that person to begin with? So we'll talk about in a while to what degree, and this is going to be an interesting question, to what degree are notions that emerge from a society that presumes a certain set of hierarchical relationships, to what degree is any of this applicable to a, our conception of a much more egalitarian set of relationships? But I want to jump ahead and plant the seed in your mind to think about it. In international affairs, when governments get into uh, conflicts, 
to what degree do people really uh, uh, are driven more by some concern of maintaining face, of saving face, of somehow uh, not showing that uh, I've been dissed by you. I don't, you know, in some sense, I'm not asking you to forgive me. I'm not even seeking you for, I'm not even you to seek forgiveness. All I want you to show is that I didn't really diss you, or I, I some level, show some level of deference to you. And if, you're, if you do that, we'll go forward. I, I wrote this paper, it made me think about it. And I don't, I don't want to get into this now, but I'll just give you, in fact, when I was writing this, it was the time of the negotiations uh, for the Iran deal with the, uh, you know, the signing of the treaty, negotiations of the treaty between the United States and Iran. And at least it struck me that each party somehow wanted to show, well, we didn't really, you know, do anything, we surely didn't do anything wrong, and we want to show that we really were properly, in some sense, respected. We were treated seriously. So I, I want to plant that seed here and suggest to what degree are people much more interested in, to use the term, saving face, than in actually somehow, and, and we can go on. So long as somehow I haven't been totally dissed by you, you recognize you dissed me, but now you're willing to concede that and, and somehow concede that, you know, I'm appeasing you. In some way, sometimes we're kissing up to the person. I'm not, but I don't have to really seek forgiveness from you or even express that on my part. Keep, keep that in mind as we're uh, going, as I said, to put it briefly, the goal in antiquity was to, quote, save face of the offended party by means of the offender going his or hers on some level. While in some instances, offending parties sought to exonerate themselves, well, I didn't really do anything wrong altogether. Right? That's one way. I, I, there was nothing really wrong there. The other thing, no, you know, in, in some senses, I concede I did something wrong. And really what I need to do is show proper deference to you, such that you can say face that you haven't been dis. Uh, and somehow lose your status. Um, uh, so that's an important, uh, in his discussions of the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic texts, he observes that in the former, there are only at best a handful of stories of reconciliation, such as the story of Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. And in none of these are the characters depicted as requesting or seeking forgiveness. In the serious sense, we can talk about Joseph and his brothers, but I think you could argue they're not so much seeking forgiveness. They're conceding that they offended him, but none of these traits of remorse, regret, and in fact, right, when uh, after Jacob dies, they are worried that somehow now Joseph is going to take it out on them. So they make up this thing, our father Jacob told us, said to us, tell Joseph your brother he shouldn't seek uh, vengeance against us. Right? So it's not, they, they never actually say, uh, forgive us for what we did. And they use other strategies, and that's the interesting issue here, and that's the real question here. For reconciliation, what are the range of strategies that people use? Is it always about forgiveness to somehow achieve some form of reconciliation, or do people reconcile without necessarily uh, uh, asking for forgiveness? Um, I'll skip over, uh, he, he, Constant goes on to discuss early rabbinic views, 
that are generally taken to be about forgiveness, and we're going to look at those in just a minute. He draws especially on the work of several other people, Michael Morgan and Louis Newman. They've offered valuable uh, analyses, nearly exclusively, of several sayings in the Mishnah and Tosefta. We're going to look at those in a minute. Constant wraps up his discussion of rabbinic texts, now extending his remarks even to the Talmudic level, to the Amoraic level, and he says, even with regard to Talmudic discussions of interpersonal forgiveness, is still set in the, constant, in the relationship of the divine. And we'll see in a minute, I think it's less about getting forgiveness from your fellow human, it's much more about making sure God forgives you. We'll see that in a minute. Therefore, there really isn't a discussion of interpersonal forgiveness. God gets in the way, as it were, of the efforts among humans. And I think we'll see that in a minute. Um, so um, I can uh, skip over here to, to this, and now we're going to turn to our text. A small number of sayings related to reconciliation appears in Mishnah and Tosefta and Halachic Midrashim. These are a, a number of texts that are Tanaitic. Not just the Mishnah, most of us don't know what Tosefta is, but it's a parallel document. Halachid uh, Midrashim are early uh, texts that comment on particularly legal portions of the uh, Bible, and they're called Halachic, and there are names of books most of us never heard of, Mechilta, Sifra, Sifrei. Uh, if you go to rabbinic school, you have to learn those somewhere, and then if you introduce it, you say this is a rabbinic commentary, it's called Midrash, right, on this. But there's a whole level of periods to rabbinic texts, and these are early ones. So um, let me look. The ultimate goal here is far more about a take. Uh, I, I want to note up front that the, none of these ultimately, these texts, describe forgiveness in the way Constant would argue we understand the concept. I'll take a question one second. And I, I'll show that it's much more either seeking atonement from God. None of these sayings delineates exactly why the offender must say, do, or feel. There's no, right? Which is from Constance and our notion, it's a lot about feeling, regret, remorse, giving up anger. These texts don't really talk in those terms. You'll see in a minute what they actually talk about. Um, but from Yom Kippur, it specifically says that you're supposed to ask forgiveness. Good. We're going to turn to that text right away. From your fellow man before you ask even from God. Ah, we'll have to see what it actually and says. And one more thing that I'm going to say about that. Isn't there a place in the Talmud where it says that um, if you ask forgiveness from somebody who you've wronged, and they choose not to accept it, you're only supposed to do it two or three times, and then you are essentially absolved. Good. That's, all those are mistranslated. <laughs> no, no, I, they're, no, they're, so they're, they're, no, so it's interesting. So let me give you, I'll, I'll, if you know some of this, uh, and, and we'll see the words in a few minutes. Uh, okay, so, let, let me answer her, then, let me, then I'll take her comment. For whatever reason, let me come at it this way. In modern Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, some of those in modern Hebrew, you do something wrong, what do you say? Slicha. That's exactly what's never, ever, ever attributed in rabbinic sources to a human. A human never grants slicha, forgiveness. 
the only things, there are other words. So for example, right, I wasn't yelling yet, but it's really interesting, right? So in modern Hebrew, for whatever reason, by trace it, when you do something wrong, you say slachli. In antiquity, we would never say slachli. The only being who can grant forgiveness in that sense is actually God. There is a word, so some of you know, right, from, we sing it a lot of times, right, on Yom Kippur, and when we do the al So we ask God, Slachlanu, Mechalanu, Kapelanu. Now the last one, Kapar, this is we're asking God, by the way. I'll come back to your text about the humans. So in terms of God, we ask for Slicha, which is forgiveness in a certain sense. But we'll see in a minute, no humans ever ask any other human for Slicha. Humans would not ask anybody for kapara. Kapara is a priestly notion of expiating sins, and it's a whole complicated idea. Mechila is an interesting idea, and we'll come back to what mechila is means, but it's not the same as forgiveness, and that's what's key here. Mechila is a different kind of uh, response than simply, we treat them as, as synonyms maybe when we say that, but they're actually when you do, not to be picky, but this is the whole point, the actual philology of those words are different. So let me look with you at these texts. So let's in fact turn to the text you just, oh, Barry, but yeah, I didn't pay you to ask that question because <laughs> because it's exactly where we're going to go. But this, this is one that is probably a tangent and might be a, a whole separate thing, is that Okay, so forgiveness is not in the texts. Correct. Right? It enters into human interaction when and why. Well, that's an interesting question uh, of uh, when does this uh, idea of forgiveness uh, really enter into uh, interpersonal relationships? Part of it has to do with when, we'll see in a minute how this connects with the rabbinic idea would be, let's say, repentance. And we're going to look at what the rabbis, at least in these early sources, understand to be repentance. And perhaps with Maimonides, we begin to hear some kind of a change. But not in these early rabbinic sources. And the, the idea I want to come back to is, much more so than the, this particular question, though it's interesting, is how did they imagine achieving reconciliation? What were the necessary steps? And it didn't require all the things we think of as changing my ways, I really feel sincere regret, or is it much more these ideas of just show me proper respect and I'll learn to live with you. That, right, that, that, that's realistic. I'm not going to ask for you to, you know, grit down on the ground and, and say, oh, it's the worst thing I ever did. So let's look at some of the sources and see what they actually say. So I'm just going to read through with you a series of Tanaitic sources, and then I'll comment on them, and then I'll stop. So I'm going to read through these texts with you. The famous one, the one you decide, what was your name? Hannah. Hannah cited. For transgressions done between a person and God, the Day of Atonement atones. I think the word is actually kaper. Right? For transgressions between one person and the other, the Day of Atonement atones 
And this is where it's key to see the words it uses. Only if I want to use the word appease, and that's, I think, the correct translation, the other, yiratzeh, to be found favorable. The word, there's a biblical words of this, you do something, God, right? You do it so that you are finding favor in the other person. You, and so what most translators would say, the real correct translation of yiratzeh is to appease. You don't say, they would never have said that. That's the whole point. We'll come back to the yiratzeh. This is, a, and, and we, we'll, we, then there's a proof text here, but keep that in mind, Yiratzeh. That's text one. Mishnah Avot. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar says, do not appease, Al-Tiratzeh, your fellow, in the hour of his anger, nor comfort him while the dead lies before him. Text three, about a different text in Avot, which is probably not really part of Avot, but we'll leave that aside. Right? There are, no, no, this, actually, this chapter is, chapter six is not part. There are four types of temperament easy to anger and easy to appease. His gain disappears with his loss, difficult to anger and difficult to appease, and then you can play out the other cases. But again, the word is giratzeh, liratzot. Different text, Mishnah Baba Kama, which has to do with uh, property law and issues of damages. Even though a person gives monetary compensation to one whom he has shamed, there's a whole series of if you busha, if you create busha, you actually can be fined monetarily. Even if, even though you still have to pay uh, a fine for having embarrassed the person. He is, and this is the, I would say, the correct word for nimchal, pardoned. And pardon is not forgiving. I'm looking at Howard here, who's the lawyer, right? right? Pardoning, when an official pardons, that's not forgiving. That's a different process when you pardon somebody. Then you actually, you're not exonerating them in some sense. Pardoning is a different, I'm not going to uh, necessarily uh, fully hold you to what I could assess you for. I'm pardoning you. I let you out of prison earlier. We do not, right, we do not, uh, what's the other, if you actually uh, annul the, the conviction, that's a different uh, terminology. And so the argument would be that the word limhol is to pardon, not the same as forgive. And so slachwanu, mechalanu, kaperlanu, we ask God to forgive, pardon, and expiate. The word, by the way, l'chaper, without getting into long discussion, has to do with l'chaper, and we know this from the text we read on, traditionally read on Yom Kippur, which is the text of uh, Leviticus 16, by Yikra 16, and it says, you shall Israel. That somehow, which gets translated, you have to expiate for the sins. It's really not expiation. It's really lechaper has a meaning of cleansing. That sin creates a stain, a presence. This is their conception. 
And sacrifices, particularly the blood of the sacrifices, are borax. Sorry. They, they actually counteract and cleanse and remove the stain of the sin. So when we ask God, in a certain sense, to expiate, to right, is really to wipe or wipe away, would be a good language, to wipe away the sin, to wipe away the negative badge that I have on me. So actually, technically, kaper with slakoro, nachalano, kaperano are slightly different processes. Slicha is the best, in a certain sense. But you'll see here, as it says, if you offend a human, he is not even nimchal by God until he seeks, now we have another word, livakesh, from him. That's another word, livakesh. What are you vakesh? Well, some text as livakesh rachamim. Rachamim is mercy. mercy. Is mercy the same as forgiveness? <laughs> I appeal to you to have mercy on me. I don't ask you to forgive me. So that's another word. Livakesh, Tosef to Baba Kama 9.29. He who injures his fellow, even though the one who did the injury did not seek lobikesh, either pardon or mercy, from the other who was injured. The one who was injured Never the, nonetheless has to seek mercy for him. Yivakesh rachamim alav, which is interesting. And you can see God's in the picture here. So if somebody in, 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 in injures me and they don't seek any kind of uh, uh, pardon from me, I have to now seek mercy from him. How do we know? Because Abraham interceded to God and God healed Abimelech. The story where Abraham pawned off Sarah as his wife, and Abimelech eventually gets afflicted, and he gives her back, right? And in the end, Abraham, even though he was the one who was the injured party, he goes out of his way to seek forgiveness. This is the way the rabbis are reading the text. To seek mercy from God upon Abimelech that he doesn't punish Abimelech. Again, the language is bikesh. Well, it depends how you read the story. <laughs> right. Tosefta right. Uh, Babakama, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Judah says in the name of Rabbi Gamaliel, Lo, it says, and he, God, shall give you mercy, Rachamim, and he shall have mercy upon you, and he shall increase you. Text from Deuteronomy. Let it be assigned to you. So long as you are merciful, he will have mercy upon you. Right? We have to be Rachel. We should have mercy. That's why we should go out of way to forgive. Does have to Baba Kama 10.14. One who steals from a group must return the stolen item to the group. But more severe is stealing from a group than stealing from an individual. Why so? For one who steals from an individual, and here's the third word, can appease him. so, Lephayes. It's a Greek word that entered into Hebrew, a loan word. And lefayes, you can almost hear it, is technically to appease. Must appease him and return the stolen item to him. 
one who steals from a group cannot appease them and return the stolen item to uh, them. Uh, and, 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 and in fact, for this text, by the way, we saw and we opened with, which is from the Mishnah, in the Halachic uh, Midrash, which is on the book of, uh, of, uh, of Vayikra, we have a parallel version. Sometimes the same saying appears in two different documents. And in that version, you see the language for transgression between a person and God. Does the Day of Atonement atone? For transgressions between one person and another, the Day of Atonement atones only, now it doesn't hear levatzot, it has the word mefayes. Now, in brief, and this gives, I would argue, that a careful examination of the language used in rabbinic sources, they use three words we've seen, levatzot, levakesh, and lefayes. If you want to restore some kind of relationship, you have to do any one of those things. None of them, and maybe you could ask this some reference limchol, right? None of those have to do with our sense of forgiveness. And we'll see in a minute that this last of them, lefayes, to appease a party whom you offended, and we'll see how you do that, is probably the dominant value, at least found in these stories that appear in the Talmud, which we're going to look at. Parties who offend another are expected to lefayes in some way to appease the party whom they offended. And I think if we look in detail at a few of these stories, some of which are successful in their ending, some of which are not, are tragic, that it's all about appeasement, abasing yourself in some way. It's never about uh, saying, I'm really sorry and seek forgiveness. It's about showing respect and deference. And I ask you to consider, again, how much of interpersonal conflict is you got to show proper respect for me and then I'll go forward and I'm not so much interested in you seeking forgiveness and whether it is the person, no, I don't know if personal, I would argue very strongly in global relations, nations really apologize to each other and yet they manage to go forward. We have examples of that, right? We've seen examples uh, I remember in the, my own university, Brown, and then they had this whole question about uh, should we apologize to African Americans and seek forgiveness for them, right, for slavery? And whether people think they should, that's a whole other issue, right? Can you even seek forgiveness from a party who you didn't directly affect? You may be the beneficiary of some of the ways in which, let's say, slaves were treated. But, you know, and it's interesting, can a person who wasn't the directly offended party seek this? But that whole issue of, are they really seeking forgiveness? Are they really seeking for us to say we're sorry? Or is there some other form of kind of reconciliation action that people are seeking that if you do that, we'll go on. If you don't do that, forget it. I can't go on with you. So what's the object in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we see in apartheid or South Africa now in the 
It was not about, they were not, they had to just tell what happened. And in fact, they made a conscious decision. They didn't ask the offending parties necessarily to say, I was wrong, I really seek your forgiveness. They knew that was a dead end. So to my understanding, I, we used to have a program at ASU where we would take students to South Africa and they would speak to people involved in the TRC. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission did not require the seeking of forgiveness and ask for the offended parties to grant forgiveness. That reconciliation required some element of factually being willing to admit what happened, but they thought if they actually asked people to say, I'm truly sorry, I feel regret, I feel remorse, that the thing would never move forward. That's my understanding of what happened. I think in, in general, that's been the, as I understand them, I haven't looked at all these, but I remember looking at some of them in some cases, that they really have not tried to push to the level of forgiveness, because they saw that as a dead end. That wouldn't work. That somehow we have to manage to go forward, and so long as I get to tell my story and ask you, and if you're willing to come forward and tell your story, we'll go forward, right? Yeah, neither, neither party was going to was going to participate in that process. If, there, if the demand was uh, for true admission of guilt, uh, expression of regret and remorse, right, that, that somehow that was seen as somewhat of a dead end. Uh, and we could, this is what was interesting, and in some ways um, I saw in my paper, and I'll talk about me at the end, as somewhat of a counter voice to, not in any ways to, to the other papers that you know, I wasn't trying in any ways to you know, yes. be dismissive. No, to be dismissive of all these wonderful efforts at peace and forgiveness, etc. But I was in some ways asking, do rabbinic sources have a model of somehow people learn to live together without necessarily attaining peace? Yeah. That's another whole topic, right, which we could talk about, which I went on to look at to what degree did the rabbis really imagine any full sense of peace ever being realizable in this world. Right? That's another whole interesting topic, the degree the rabbis are, they, and people will talk about how rabbinic prayer ends with peace, right? we, end, we end with the uh, Kaddish prayer at the end of the service, Shalom. we end the Amidah with the Birkat Shalom, right? But in a certain sense, in our actual actions, did the rabbis really imagine a world which they should strive for peace, but they look for much lower expectations. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind as well. You know, uh, so many people here, if, if you're involved in international relations, realpolitik is less about a grandiose vision of peace. I don't mean to be a downer, but somehow to go on, can we live only in these ideals or other strategies that somehow allow people to go on and, and, and cooperate on some levels. Sometimes not. Sometimes the only is uh, solution is, I'll stay out of your yard and you'll stay out of my yard and we'll, we'll go on with our lives. But, but people have to uh, deal with this, whether let's take a case of a divorce situation. Sometimes you can just upset yourself. But the degree to which you want to have, have, let's say if you have children, you have to have some continuing involvement. Do you restore? Or do you have sufficient reconciliation or some way of living together that you don't constantly right, uh, go after each other in various ways, but there's no sense of peace or surely not a restoration to the status quo ante 
of going back to being a happily married couple, or whatever it might have been at some stage. So I want to look now with you at a couple of Talmudic stories where we see these things played out. Some of these are well known, at least to people who study rabbinic sources. So the first Amoraic text, I mean, this is a very famous story. It's a story about how Rabbi Gamliel, who was supposedly the head of the academy, who was, was uh, removed eventually from his role as the head of the academy, and the story goes as follows. Our rabbis taught, it happened that a certain student came before Rabbi Joshua. He said to him, is the evening prayer, Arvit, Marit, is it optional or compulsory? There's a whole rabbinic discussion, right? You have to really, uh, just explain the background. If the Amidot, the two base, the prayers, are to meant to be a replacement for the uh, sacrifices in the temple, which were no longer being done, then we should have Shacharit and Mimcha, the morning prayer and the afternoon prayer. But the evening prayer is questioned whether it's compulsory. We actually know that the rabbis were somewhat in doubt because for Shacharit and Mincha we have a repetition of the Amidah. For the sake of those who, right, the reason we have a repetition is theoretically, according to the rabbis, for those who aren't able to fulfill the obligation of saying the prayer on their own, they can listen to the, the prayer leader, the Shliach Tzibur, and if they say Amen, they fulfill their responsibility. We don't require that for Mari because it's kind of this gray zone. So they, the story goes, they came to Rabbi Joshua and they asked him, and he says, optional, not required. He came to Rabbi Gamliel and he said to him, is the same question, he said to him, compulsory. The question is said to Rabbi Gamliel, but Rabbi Joshua told me, optional. He said to him, Wait until the shield bearers enter the house of study. Now there's a whole deeper level here how rabbinic stories imagine the rabbis locked it. They use militaristic combative language. The Beit Midrash is a, a context in which the rabbis are engaged in their own, as we say and some of us well know, verbal conflict. Jews don't do that well at all. So, but here you see it. So, but they use this. The shield bearers entered, the questioner stood and asked. They bring back the guy. Now, I'm not, you're not asking me one-on-one, -on -one, Gamliel. I want you to pose the question in front of the whole group. Is the evening prayer optional compulsory? Rabbi Gamliel said to him, compulsory. Aha. Gamliel said to the, to the sage, is there anyone here who disagrees concerning this matter? Rabbi Joshua said to him, no. He doesn't want to tell the truth. Well, Gamliel says to him, but they told me that you said it was optional. He said to him, Joshua, stand on your feet and let them testify against you. Essentially, they basically he did once one of the cardinal sins of rabbinic Judaism, he shamed him publicly. And some of you know the rabbi says that shaming somebody is as if you have murdered them. Gross sin. So this really pushes the envelope. What happens? So Rabbi Joshua stood on his feet and said, 
If I were alive and he were dead, the living can contradict the dead. But now that I am alive and he is alive, how can the living contradict the living? I can't deny it. But Gamaliel really embarrasses him. So Gamaliel was sitting and teaching, and Joshua was standing on his feet. Some of you may have had professors who did this to you, right? And you, you dumb student, don't you know it? You've got to stand there, and I've got to you know, stick it to you and make you look like an idiot. Well, this is basically what he did. Until all the people shouted and said to this guy, Chutzmit, you know, said to him, stop! And he stopped. And they said, how long will Gugumleo go on troubling you? He did this on several other occasions. They said, they revolted. Let us depose Gumleo, who's offended essentially the whole community by his action. He's wronged them. So they go on, who shall we put him in his place? And they end up with this choice after a couple of other options with this guy, Elazar ben Arzariyeh, for he is wise and wealthy, and he is also, he has other yichas. He comes from the line of Ezra. So if somebody goes to attack him, he can also claim lineage beyond wise and wealth. He has three attributes. That sort of makes him somebody a good candidate to take his place uh, in his place. But he was young. But then he grows a beard, as some of you know from Passover. We read about Elizabeth and Arzari, and he says, I'm like, I'm 70 years old, right? And some of you know that section from the Haggadah, until so-and-so explained to me a certain verse, right, uh, which we don't have to go in here. They said to Elizabeth, would our master consent to be the head of the academy? He said, let me go and consult the members of my household. i got to talk to my wife. <laughs> That's what it really means. He went and consulted his wife. Story that notes three objections she raised and the response to each of them, including concern they might depose him. It was taught that the day they removed the guard from the gate and gave students permission to enter for Ragamriel had decreed any student who was inside is not like those outside may not enter. Right, so the whole academy becomes much more open to having free discussion. Now we come to the gate, the point. So what is Gamriel doing? He's very distressed. He said, perhaps God forbid. I have held back Torah from Israel. I've not allowed for the kind of conversation to take place in the academy. He's feeling distressed. They showed him a dream, whatever, we can go by that. Um, and we'll skip over to uh, letter J. Gamliel, in fact, did not hold him back himself from the Beit Midrash, from the academy. Even though he's been now deposed, he still can't not take part in the study of Torah. Uh, and the, the text continues with uh, another discussion, which they claimed happened after they deposed uh, Gamliel. Letter K. Gamliel said to himself, since it is so that this has come about, and here's the key point, I will go afayes to appease him. Rabbi Joshua, when he arrived at his house, and he, now he makes it worse, he sees that the house of jo the walls of Joshua's house are black, and he said to him, from the walls of your house, it is evident that you are a smith. He doesn't have a congregation. He doesn't have a pension. He has to make a living somehow other than simply being a sage. It's not a great paying job. They still say not a good job for a Jewish kid to become a rabbi. Okay, we'll leave that aside. He said to him, right, Gamil now, most sensitive guy in the world. 
He's already stuck into this guy. Offended. He says, woe to the generation, right? So they say to him, uh, he says, you know, I see you're poor. So Joshua turns around and says to him, woe to the generation whose chief you are. For you do not know, you don't even know the distress, the conditions under which your students are living. Sounds like every doctoral advisor. Uh, <laughs> how they earn a living and how they subsist. And here's the key words. At that point, he says to him, which probably means, I submit to you. Pardon me. He, Joshua, paid no attention. So what does he say? Don't do it for me. Do it for the honor of my father's house. And the text says he was appeased. I'll stop there. Thoughts? Sounds like a convention. Sounds like a convention? The, the, who's going to be the new head? <laughs> yeah, but he, so Gamaliel wants, right, and the story goes on actually, they reappoint him, but they end up with a compromise, so he gets to be the head for three weeks, and Elazar Ben Azaria, who had been his replacement, gets one week, right, so they, they restore some kind of reckons, they re restore partially the situation, Gamaliel's been the offender, Gamaliel seeks a peace to appease him, he doesn't accept. He says, well, don't do it for my sake. And it's really, do it for the covenant, for the honor, the status of my ancestry. And he says, for that reason, I will, you know, I, I will accept your appeasement. I'll accept your offer. And we go back to where we were. Yeah. So didn't uh, Joshua or Rabbi Joshua misrepresent, or more specifically, lie? Yes, so he, but he was put on the spot in a certain sense. He, he, he knew Gamaliel's track record. He knew Gamaliel was doing this fundamentally in the end. It was, he was in a no-win situation because he knew if he told the truth, Gamaliel will also go after him and use the power of his status to make fun of his position, right? which we shouldn't think rabbis were always so you know, perfect in terms of their deportment that Joshua said, what am I going to do? I can tell the truth, and he's going to, right? So I'm going to try standard, uh, approach B, and I won't take on his position. I'll concede his position's correct, except Gamaliel's not happy with that. So the question is, was Gamaliel simply, oh, I want you to be truthful? Or Gamaliel, but he doesn't simply do that. He really goes to town on him, right? And he makes him, you're going to stand there, and I'm not going to keep teaching, and I'm going to show how wrong your position is. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, Joshua chose a strategy. Yes, he didn't tell the truth. But in the end, he, was, he saw it from his perspective. He was in a no-win no situation. No, well, there are deeper issues about how the rabbis looked at the patriarchs. But let me look at another story with you. And this one's even more tragic. A very famous Talmudic story. At least if you know the Talmud, right? So, for the, I, mean, I mean, so when I presented this to, in a Jewish setting, I presented to the Society of Jewish Ethics. There I had a bunch of people actually do these stories, but it was kind of a new angle of thinking about that. So this is a very famous story. It's analyzed on many levels 
about a, a scholar, a Palestinian, a Mora, a land of Israel, a Mora named Rabbi Yochanan, and a person named Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. Here's the story. So, and there's all kinds of other levels to this. Danny Boyarin has analyzed this story in terms of all the sexual imagery involved here, which we won't get into tonight. That's a topic for another day. So Yochanan was swimming in the Jordan. Reish Lakish, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, a person whose storyteller describes as having been abandoned. Right? Way to make a living in antiquity. Saw him and thought he was a woman. There's a whole bunch of stuff about Yochanan having beautiful looks and being somewhat vain about his looks. He crossed the Jordan after him by placing his lance in the Jordan and vaulting to the other side. When Yochanan, there's obviously that's not a subtle sexual illusion. When Rabbi Yochanan, but you'll see what happens at the next phase. When Rabbi Yochanan saw Rishuman ben Lakish, she said to him, your strength to Torah. He replied, your beauty for women. It's an interesting exchange to talk about to this Rabbi Yochanan, right? You're a real hunk, man. He said to him, if you repent, I will give you my sister in marriage, who is more beautiful than I am. Uh, you know, the, the, my sister's a pawn. I'll trade off to you, and that's an incentive for you to come study Torah. Not only you will learn Torah, but you'll get my sister in the deal as well. He agreed, and here you can see the the sexual imagery. He crossed back. He wanted to cross back, to vault back, to retrieve his land on his lands to retrieve his clothing because he's jumped into the river with him, right? But he could not. Obviously, his land's no longer is straight. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to be, I think there's a, there's a level of the story. We have to say the rabbis were subtly using various kinds of illusions. And so he taught him Mishnah and Talmud and made him a great man. So Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish now becomes a great Torah scholar. One day they were disputing in the study hall regarding the following issue. A sword, a lance, and a dagger. From what point in the manufacturing did they become susceptible to uncleanness? So objects, if they are in a status of being able to become unclean, if they come into contact with a source of uncleanness, can then become unclean. If they're not yet in the status where they can become unclean, then they can touch that source of uncleanness and they won't become unclean, right? So, so you have to move from a stage of somehow in the manufacturing. So you take the steel, right? And there's a process, right? And where you make it, you fire it, heat it, mold it, and then you have to put it into water. The point is, until you harden it by putting it in the water, it's still not really functional for humans. But it looks like a spear or whatever once it's fired. So there's, a, there's an interesting issue here, a philosophical issue of when does something become something, is it relative to human usability, or is it based on its form, irrespective of whether humans can yet use it. I mean, that's the deeper issue here. It's the rabbi's physics here. So uh, they ask, at, a, at what point is the manufacture completed? Rabbi Yochanan said, from the time they forged it in the fire, and it's still blazing hot but at least assume the form of an implement. But a student says, from the time they polished it in water. Now what went wrong here? In rabbinic culture, a student can, can challenge the view of the teacher. 
can say, I don't think that, I think, have you considered the following? But a student can never, without asking, may I teach a view on this, offer their own position. You'll see this is important. It's one thing to be able to challenge a view, but that doesn't mean you can put forward your own view. <coughs> to do that, you, you're clearly, you're not able to offer an alternative without at least asking, may I now teach a position? So you can see what the case of case. Exactly right. So what happens? Rabbi Yochanan says, huh, a bandit knows his banditry. Aha, we're talking about weapons. You're an expert at that. Right? I obviously say to him, look, you've spent all these years in the academy studying Torah. Guess what? In the end, you're still a ganif. He said to him, what have you profited me? That this is Rachel Lockheed's response. Because there, when I was a bandit, they called me Rav. They called me Master. I was the chief bandit. And here they called me Rav. But you insulted me, right? So good, I'll go back to being a bandit. I'll have the same respect. So Yochanan said to him, I benefited you from bringing you under the wings of the Shekhinah. I brought you closer to God. Yochanan became distressed which means his mind, the technical words, his mind became weak. It's a whole interesting idea. And Reish Lakish became physically weak. He, Yochanan's sister, the wife of Reish Lakish, came weeping. She said to him, act for the sake of your, your, the children. I mean, if he dies, they're going to be orphans, right? Yochanan said to her, don't worry about it. Leave your father with children, and I will keep them alive. God says that, but essentially Yochanan said, don't worry. I'll take care of them. She said to him, I'm your sister, and act for the sake of my widowhood. He said to her, citing the same verse, and let your widow trust in me. That's the second half of that verse. And Reish Lakish dies. And Rabbi Yochanan now grieves exceedingly. The rabbi said, how will we ease Yochanan's mind? We'll bring in this guy, Elazar ben Padat. But he's brilliant. He, Elazar, went and sat before him. And for every law that Rabbi Yochanan taught, he would say, right, there's a tradition that supports you. He, Yochanan, said, are you the, are you the replacement for Lakish? For the son of Lakish used to raise uh, of 24 objections to every point I made. And I used to supply 24 rebuttals until the matter became completely clear. And all you can say is, thanks, you know, other people agree with you. I don't need that. Didn't I already know that I have good things? I don't need you to tell me I have a good idea. I need you to challenge me, not to offer an alternative opinion, but to challenge me. So he used to go and rend his clothing and cry, Oi, where are you, the son of Lakish? Where are you, the son of Lakish? And he cried until he went mad. And the sages prayed for him, and his soul went to rest. Neither party would give up their position. Right? He wouldn't show proper deference. He said, huh, you're going to call me a bandit? What do I need you for? 
And the other guy said, well, too bad. And the rabbi is telling the story here, and I read it as a story, not necessarily that it really happened. Tragic when neither party can somehow act to show deaf, proper deference and respect to the other party, we end up in tragedy. It's not all so bad. We'll look at the last story and then we'll wrap up. Here's our same guy, Rabbi Elazar Pizbedat. Reports a teaching of Rabbi Yochanan regarding Leverett marriage in the academy. Leverett marriage is right when a, a woman uh, 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 dies and there's no children, right, then she's supposed to marry the brother of the uh, person, uh, of the deceased brother, of the deceased the former husband. That's Leverett marriage. And, but he reported this tradition, but did not report it in the name of Rebbe Yochanan. Big value in rabbinic culture. It's called B'Shem Omro. You have to say something. I heard it, and I'm teaching you the tradition of so-and-so. Yochanan heard it and became angry. I'm not receiving the proper credit. My status is not being respected. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Yassi came to him and said to him, well, didn't it once happen that in the synagogue in Tiberias be, uh, regarding the use on Sabbath of the doorbolt, which has at the knob at one end, can you use that on Shabbat right, that, without getting in the particulars of the issue, that Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Shemua and Rabbi Yossi disputed so intensely that they <laughs> tore, a scroll, tore a scroll in their anger. Essentially saying to him, right, Back off. Cool it. Cool it. The text continues an anonymous comment on the story, indicating that the Torah scroll was not torn, right? Nor that the two disputing parties intentionally tore it, right? It, 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 they didn't mean to tear it, right? Additionally, reports was torn. Uh, uh, excuse me. Additionally, reports the comment by Yosef Kispo said he would be surprised if the synagogue would not be torn, not turned into a house of idolatry, which it did. Right? That kind of dispute where you get into such angry conflict, I mean, it's showing that intense anger. Right? But this is what they're telling Yochanan, chill, because look what happened when sages get into such conflicts. Upon hearing the comments by Rabbi Yassi and Rabbi Ami, Yochanan became even more angry. He said, you mean to treat him, Elazab and Padat, as my colleague, that is Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shemur, or at least colleagues, are the same level. I am Rabbi Elazar's teacher, not his colleague. So don't tell me a story to make me feel better, right, by that. So what happens? Ah, strategy two. Rabbi Jacob Benidi came in and said to Rabbi Yochanan, as the Lord commanded Moses' his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And did Joshua then, concerning every word which he said, did he have to tell the Israelites, thus Moses said to me? Rather, Joshua sat and expounded without mentioning the name of Moses or his sources, and everyone, of course, knew that he was simply repeating traditions that he heard from Moses. So to Eleazar, your student, Right? Sits and expounds without mentioning names, but everybody knows that what he's talking about is actually your own teaching. He Yochanan said to Rav, Rav Ami and Rav Asi, why did you not know how to pacify the Fayes 
to appease me, as does the son of Rebbe, uh, of son of Kiri, our colleague. And the te text continues that why he was so angry. But the point was, right, that I would argue, when somehow Yochanan could feel like his status hadn't been compromised, that everybody, of course, would know that it was really his own teachings that were being taught. He was content at that point. His anger dissipated, and he was able to restore. So in this story, so I've given you three stories. First story, the effort at reconciliation. Well, first move didn't work, but then he said, do it for my father's, my family's honor. Good. Story two, tragic. Nobody moves, they both die. Story three, initial effort at reconciliation only makes matters worse. But then the second move somehow is able to restore uh, the situation. Let me offer a couple of uh, comments here and uh, uh, by way of conclusion, then I'll throw it open to uh, discussion. So what can we learn about forgiveness and reconciliation from these stories? They demonstrate the difficulty of attaining such a result, a perspective shared by the larger discussion in the Talmud, and I don't want to go uh, uh, through, through all that uh, here. Um, are these stories applicable to interpersonal, perhaps by extension to intergroup, international, interethnic conflicts today? The larger religious background that undergirds the rabbinic texts, of, of course, may render them irrelevant to those who uh, approach conflict through a non-religiously informed perspective. Because in the end, a lot of this has to do, even the text from, from Yom Kippur, is about that God will only forgive you if you seek the favor of your other person. So it's really ultimately the goal is God's forgiveness for you. Constant's concluding comments to this study, however, underscore the value of, of examining foundational texts of Western, uh, Western civilization for what they have to say or don't have to say about forgiveness. He observes, I have sought to show that the notion of interpersonal forgiveness as it is basically understood today is not only not universal, but is also of relatively recent coinage, and that ancient societies to which we often look for models for ethical concepts, and here's his words, seem to have done perfectly well without it. I do not mean to suggest that we that they were in any way morally inferior for this absence. My object is simply to have set the record straight about the strategies of reconciliation as a way of understanding uh, uh, their, practice, their practices in their own terms. That's his quote. Whether the rabbinic views about the difficulties and the importance of attaining reconciliation have any salience for our period, I believe is worth considering. And I'd like to throw the floor open at this point. So what do you think? Are there lessons here? Is forgiveness really essential for reconciliation? Or are there other strategies that are probably more realistic and allow us to move on than expecting the person really uh, to act in such a way that what we think of as, please, you know, you, we have to, I please, please, please forgive me where is that really what people are looking for? Are people much more looking for, I want to say face, and if you show proper deference to me and appease me, 
I'll go forward with you. It seems in this last story. You can talk to everybody. Just make sure everybody can hear. It seems, it seems in this last story that the Okanon is appeased when he is flattered. When he's told, you know, your, your teachings are so well known. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just because everybody doesn't name you, it does, you know, everybody knows it. He's flattered. And it seems that, that, that all three stories show a certain respect, a certain acceptance of human narcissism, of human need to be respected, to be flattered, to, to, be, you know, to be given the gift they do. And I wonder, even even more, I mean, their world, again, is more hierarchical, but even in our world. Yeah, uh -huh. as, I, as I mean, so as a psychologist or as a, as a psychiatrist, right, it's an interesting observation to what degree is there a sense of a realization that people want this kind of, whether it's not, maybe narcissistic or in a certain sense, I need oh, to be shown I, I proper respect, and if you show me proper respect, I can live with you. I mean, it's narcissism in the sense of the human need for self-esteem, and we get our self-esteem sometimes from other people who show us respect. And that's all I'm going to expect of you. Uh -huh. And if somehow you do something that allows me to reestablish my sense of self-worth, right, I'll be content and I can move forward with that, I'm rather than I'm going to go through this whole thing of seeking some kind of act of intense remorse. And I mean, the stories here, of course, they don't talk about remorse, right? They basically said, the guy says, he doesn't even say, I'm sorry. I said, I, 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 basically, I, I submit to you. I acknowledge your role. I acknowledge, in some sense, that you are an offended party. But I don't, more than that, I don't need to do. Well, it's last story. Yeah. It's not even the offender who apologizes. Well, it's, in a certain sense, this is, yes, this is a, that's another interesting dimension of third parties who manage to uh, do something to mitigate the negative effects such that the, the offended party can go forward now to what degree he's able, but in certain sense it seems like they're able to return to that a required mediation of a third party, right? And uh, I, again, I don't know in, whether in psychological or legal context, what do mediators do? What do they try to push issues? And are they asking for the person, do they want to push so hard that the person has to concede, please, please, please forgive me or do you ask for something less of that? And I, and I don't know, if, if you even imagine this in loving relations of, of, let's say, spouses and partners, how much do our, in our conflicts, that's what it's often about. You dissed me. You didn't come home when you said you were going to come home, right? And now you sometimes say, I'm sorry, but somehow you do other things, too, where, uh, where maybe that's, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Right? In a certain sense. You don't, sometimes you don't, no, some say, no, until you say you're sorry. You don't just tell me you didn't, if you, you know, I, I didn't mean to hurt you. But some people recognize, okay, listen, if, I, if I've got to push that hard and ask for the person to really say I'm sorry, then we're going to end up with nothing. So I've got to settle maybe for something less here. I saw him then come back to the comment. Well, I'd like to come back to the question that was asked before. Then, uh, this all, the concept of forgiveness and and mercy and pardon all occur in historical context of the way we structure our societies and our interpersonal relationships, both as peoples and as individuals. So can you tell us a little bit more about your thinking about where does the concept of 
Well, I mean, it comes. He, I mean, he traces it to, without getting on to the the Kant and the notion of each person is truly a person and everybody's equal. equal and this is sort of our sense of how we should organize societies and, and, and show, um, uh, treat each, I mean, in Kant's formulation, to treat each person as an as a end, never as a means, right? Uh, so you show their true humanity, I have to, right? And, and somehow, if I offend you, then Kant says, this is what needs to really be done. And in some sense, it's, is that a purist philosophical idea as opposed to pragmatic, right? So the question is, in pragmatic terms, what do we really expect to be able to go forward to reconcile? And is this concept of, as, as Kant would develop it, of like, well, you didn't treat me as a full human being, and unless you do that, I'm not going to play in the sandbox with you anymore. You know, is that really practical? So maybe it's a, a, in part a issue of practicality, and we could take it to whatever kinds of conflicts, again, whether it's interpersonal, interethnic, interracial, international. Uh, you know, um, I don't want to get into current presidential campaigns and the kind of things going on there. You know, but I mean, to what, what do you expect people to say to each other and what should you expect, you know, whether you're offending people is another whole issue. That's clearly a whole separate thing and somehow there's something wrong with offending people now. But, but what would we at least expect people to do to be able to go, you know, and think about it in, in campaigns. Everybody makes up in the end. They don't say, I'm sorry for saying all these bad things. We somehow reconcile because we identify some common goal. Uh, whatever it is, and we manage on some level to go forward. Now, if there's, we maybe retain, uh, I'm sorry, you retain hostility, is that reconciliation? I don't know. You know, if you retain it in your heart, but you won't act on it. But a lot of people say, you know, I'm just going to go away. I mean, sometimes we can do that. I'm going to move away. I'm going to reduce any uh, uh, likelihood of my having to interact with the person. And, and they won't, I won't get upset, but they'll stay away from them, they'll stay away from me, and th at least we're not in conflict all the time. And I don't love them, right? Uh, I don't have to, but I don't necessarily, I don't want them to win such that I eat myself up all the time being angry at them, which I can't do anything about. Because then in the end, they've actually dictated my life. If I let them, you know, eat myself inside, that's I'm so angry at that person. You know, and the other person a lot of times just moves on. And you're sitting there eating yourself up, and they've moved on in their lives. And, and that's not very healthy either. And that's, uh, I mean, that's a kind of reconciliation. So reconciliation doesn't mean necessarily restoration of a relationship. So I'm, I'm using reconciliation in a broad sense and suggesting maybe forgiveness is a, an apex. But is that really... Uh, practical to expect that all the time. Well, it sounds like, you know, I think the, the key word there is restoration of a relationship. In, in the modern context, if a relationship is seen as uh, revalued, the relationship between two people, both of whom have value, then restoration of the relationship, in that sense, may require forgiveness. Yeah, but sometimes we can have, or we have maybe not, re well, the question is, do we have a relationship to start? That's another whole, or we had a certain kind of relationship. So now we're willing to settle for this. We don't, and sometimes people say, you know, as I said, certain divorced couples, right, don't seek to restore the relationship, but they at least seek to somehow get along enough that they don't put kids in the middle, et cetera, 
And, and that's a kind of a level, I don't know if you want to call that res reconciliation, maybe that's the wrong word, but it's surely not of a constant battle. It's not like they're going after each other every day of the week, which sometimes couples continue to do. So that's a, it's a kind of relation. I mean, these are all relationships of a certain sort. It's civility. It's civility. It's not hostility anymore, right? In the divorce world, they talk about that and, and building a business-like relationship. Yeah, but it's a relationship. As a, it's not, but it's not the one of hostility and anger. And, and you may get beyond that and learn to live together. Right, okay, so, so you may even retain the anger. Sometimes you get beyond the anger and you live to cooperate as to what you need to cooperate like, but you're not in a loving relationship anymore. Connie, uh, you had a... Last question. Um, it also depends on the relationship that you Absolutely. Well, I mean, a lot of this, of course, I mean, obviously lots of uh, uh, conflict emerges from miscommunication and misunderstanding. And sometimes all we need to do is to, hopefully, if we clap, right? But that's, that's not essentially taking forgiveness. That would be a question of like excusing, you didn't quite understand what I was really doing. If you really understood what I was doing, you wouldn't be offended by what I did. Right? So that's a kind of excuse, or I meant it this way, and, and I'm sorry, I meant it this way, and it turned out to do that, but that wasn't my intention. You should have told it against me that I, that's what came of it. Those are methods of excusing. You're not seeking the person to forgive you. You're seeking for the person to understand what you were really up to. That's a very different strategy, and that's quite true, right? How much of conflict emerges from failure to properly communicate or misperceiving what the other person was up to. These cases, there really is an offense. And the offense, in some sense, was quite knowledgeably done. Right? So, so it's not somebody's going to say, I didn't really mean it that way. Right? They knew exactly what they meant. So then what did they do after having done that? Various strategies here. So um, thank you.